Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, I'll be discussing the results of yesterday's Western Australian state election with my guest, William Bowe from the Poll Bludger website. Hello, William. Hello. So this is a last minute podcast where recording about yesterday's results. We're recording it at about midday Western Australia time, 3 p.m. in Sydney, uh, the day after the election. So William and I are just sort of catching up just now on what's been happening in WA. Um, and so I, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure where to start. I guess we start with the lower house with the swing. Uh, William, do you just want to start by recapping like what actually happened? Um, well, in terms of the size of the swing, uh, the last I checked, it was uh, 13 point something percent statewide, 13.7% according to my uh, estimate, which is impressive in any circumstance. But it's doubly impressive when you're building on top of what was already regarded as a landslide. The 2017 election was Labor's best win ever until now in Western Australia. So, uh, you know, we've seen 13.7% swings in circumstances where, you know, you're coming off a landslide and it's reverting to the mean. But uh, in so many ways, this was something else. There was a bit of that last election, right, that 2013 had been a record result for the Liberals and the Nationals and then Labor... They did very well, but they also came off a very low base to get a very large swing. So this is even more impressive because you look at that cumulative swing over eight years and it's like a quarter of the population has swung. Yeah, um, uh, over consecutive elections, I'm not sure you'd have too many historic occasions where you had consecutive landslide uh, swings in the order of sort of 10 to 15%. So the historical comparisons, Western Australia doesn't have until now uh, any great electoral convulsions in its history. So uh, it, it was relatively easy to set sort of records, you know, uh, for, for the Liberals, as you say. What was 2013 their biggest whenever it may have been? Certainly in the last few decades. And, uh, you know, now you mention it, I think in, in most other states there were sort of historical convulsions at one point or another that did lead to sort of colossal landslides. But uh, Western Australia's state has already be, has always been stable in its state politics, and uh, has very uh, regularly and in an orderly way uh, had changes of government sort of every seven to ten years. So uh, if it is indeed the case that Labor have won, you know, two elections here rather than just one, given the size of their majority then uh, we're, we're looking at 12 years of Labor government, which will be uh, certainly Labor's longest period in office ever, and perhaps would eclipse the longest ever Liberal government, which was David Brand's with about 11 or 12 years back in the sort of late 58 to 71 from memory. It's obviously going to be hard for to expect that many people to swing if we think about it in terms of the swing to win um, percentage required for the Liberal Party. But actually... On top of that, because after all, you know, a lot of those people eight years ago were voting Liberal and a lot of those people will still be voting Liberal at a federal level. But the bigger problem for the Liberals, I think, is just the structural nature of the fact that they're only going to have, you know, probably two seats. Uh, and we haven't really talked about the seat count, but at the moment they've won only two seats in the lower house, maybe six in the upper house, but some of those are, look a little bit shaky. Um you know, they could get to four seats in the lower house if things go their way, but they're, they're going to be an absolute rump, um, probably smaller than the Nationals in the lower house. There's a small chance 
That could also be true in the upper house or at least an equal number. Um, so, yeah, so the seat count, um, maybe I'll, I'll go through a bit of that. Um, so one of the things I found really remarkable was I was expecting differential swings. I was expecting some diversity in the swing. But you go down the Liberal pendulum and all the seats at the top, they all fell first. And then you get to a couple of seats where it's really close and we don't know who's won. And then the last couple of seats are safe. Um and one of the bits I saw when I did analysis as well is there was a smaller swing to Labor in those safer seats. So we're only talking about two seats, Cottesloe and Vass, but um, there was a stronger swing to Labor in those more marginal electorates. Um, but yeah, it was very consistent. Uh, they have lost all the seats that were expected. Um, they appear to have lost Bateman to Labor. Netherlands is still very close as is Churchlands, which is a kind of classic blue ribbon liberal seat. And um, yeah, it's there's the, the seat count is uh, is pretty brutal. Uh, yeah, well, in terms of the, the, the differentials of the swing, as you say, they weren't much. Uh, but yeah, the, the fact that it wasn't quite as bad in swing terms in liberal held seats, uh, it, the, the Liberal Party were promising to uh, shut down WA's coal-fired power plants, which, you know, there's a big culture war going on in the blame game of the Liberal Party this morning over this. Uh, the, uh, the idea of that was actually to, to save these sorts of seats. Uh, you know, it was a, a sort of pitch for the, the, the you know, progressive blue-green kind of vote in, in wealthy constituencies in the western suburbs. And uh, while I would, you'd have to hesitate to say that anything worked for the Liberal Party, uh, I, I do think that, that in, in relative terms that, you know, resulted in that element of differentiality to the swing. Uh, in other regional uh, terms, I'd sort of point out that the Nationals' primary vote held up in their traditional areas. It did not held up in the sorts of places where they had gained support that they never had before, which was a sort of phenomenon in Western Australian politics from about 2007 to 2017, where uh, under Brendan Grills, they uh, you know became the party of royalties for regions, and really uh, yeah, were winning seats where they had historically had no presence at, at all. Pilbara, which you know they 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 weren't even running candidates. Uh, Northwest Central, which was a seat that they gained when the Labor member defected to the Nationals. Uh, he he read the breeze there. He won a few elections as the Nationals candidate there. It looks like he's lost that seat. And this is beyond the agricultural wheat belt. This is the 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 you know big wild wildernesses of northern Western Australia. Uh, and they said, well, we're not the party of farmers, we're the party of the regions, and you need to vote for us because we don't have much power in the parliament anymore now that one vote, one value has been introduced, and I'm offering you this, you know, giant birthday gift of royalties for regions. And that, you know, was a resulted in the Nationals achieving things they'd never achieved before, but it was in those areas which, you know, had not been traditional national territory that behaved like metropolitan seats. Uh, the actual wheat belt seats, though, the, the Nationals vote has held up. The, the Liberal and One Nation vote has, has collapsed there, but the, the, that, that is a, a, a regional differentiation. 
and it you know potentially sets up the situation we're going to be hearing a lot about in the next few days where the nationals win more seats than the liberals and the opposition leader is the nationals leader this has been a very uh two party one party really focused election but the it's not only the Liberals and to a lesser extent the Nationals who've been squeezed by Labor's performance, but we've also seen a decline in the Greens' vote. Um, although it does look like, thanks to the collapse in the Liberal vote, uh, the Greens may come second in as many as three lower house seats, which has never happened at a general election in Western Australia before. But there has been a decline in the Greens' vote. We'll talk about the upper house in a minute. Uh, One Nation's vote has crashed. Uh, we, we, ironically, we may well see some Australian Christians come second in the lower house, but again, that's a relic of the Liberal Party doing so poorly. But yeah, it's it's been very much an election where the minor party element has been sort of sidelined. Yeah, this was a, a really positive vote for Labor. You know, th- this isn't like the sort of the, the 2012 landslide in Queensland and the 2011 landslide in New South Wales both of which were uh, a unpopular government being angrily rejected from office. This is, you know, obviously the main difference here is that we're talking about an incumbent government here. And there's just this sort of degree of enthusiasm for Mark McGowan and for the uh, a sense of gratitude among the, the the Western Australian population that we've been spared this blight of COVID nineteen. I think there might be a slightly exaggerated sense of how different things are in the eastern states, but uh, more plausibly, people are comparing Western Australia to, to the situation in the United States and Europe. And uh, it, we've got an attitude towards the governing party that I've just never seen in my life. You know, we've both grown up in an age of great scepticism and cynicism and talk of eroding trust in politics and all of the rest. So this is an extremely unusual situation. And it has caused the Labor to suck up votes from all comers. That kind of generalised anti-major party vote that finds uh, expression through one nation has evaporated. Uh, You know, I suppose that there was enough of a micro party vote, as we'll shortly discuss, to uh, you know result in the, the, the micro parties having a presence in the upper house, which there's a lot to talk about there. But nonetheless, you know, as you say, it's news to me that the Australian Christians might be coming second in a seat. Armadale. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, that's completely. Which is a. Labor's safest seat under normal circumstances, so that, that, that there's barely any liberal presence at all. But you know, and Labor have picked up votes from the Greens. That they've picked up votes from everybody, and it's you know just a, a, a sort of giant positive affirmation for the government. It is quite remarkable as someone in who's not in Western Australia that. I do get a sense from people paying attention who are not in WA struggling to comprehend how popular Mark McGowan is right now. Like, you know, I my friends in Sydney tend to be people who are of the centre-left and um, Gladys Berejiklian is surprisingly popular now. Like she has she has got some popularity here, which other people in other states don't seem to understand either. But it seems like it's a totally different creature in Western Australia, something that, yeah, like, like you say, we're both roughly the same age we have not seen in our lifetimes. You know, it's sort of 
what it must have been like back in times in the United States when they would have like uncontested elections to president um, that you just, this is as close to an uncontested election as, as I feel like we've seen. Not, you know, we had the opposition leader concede defeat weeks out. So yeah, it's really remarkable. Well, that gives us a chance maybe to drive into the upper house. And uh, uh, so just to give people a, a bit of uh, context of what's been going on, you're in WA, I'm in Sydney, I went to bed earlier, you stayed up later with all the results as they came in, and I've been doing a bit more analysis today, uh, including some upper house stuff. So I've been looking at it a little bit more currently, but we've both been diving into them a bit. Um, The first thing to say about the upper house is Labor has a majority, and they've basically got a majority on a lock. They need 19 seats for majority, 20 for an absolute majority for constitutional change. They, I can't see them dropping below 22. Uh, there's at least a 23rd seat. Uh, there might be a 24th. I'm not sure about that yet. Um, they have a solid majority. There's a bunch of seats in play, but none of them can affect the state of the House. That Labor's in power. They can do whatever they want, basically. Um, but then we do have a bunch of these other races in play. The legalized cannabis is currently leading in two seats, but they are by no means certain. Uh, the Liberals and Nationals between themselves have 10 the Greens only have one seat at the moment, but there's two others where I think they do have a chance, although I haven't had a chance to properly look at the Southwest yet. But And we do also have the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers are currently on track to hold one seat, although the, the person who holds that seat is different to the um, their current MLC who changed regions to run in a more difficult race. So um, what jumps out at you first about these races, William? The... the, the... Overall result in the Legislative Council, I mean, is like everything else about this election extraordinary. Uh, the, the, the fact of Labor winning a majority is, uh, you know, in, in a system that's, you know, enormously stacked against them, and this is, you know, going to be very difficult for them to avoid the, the, the temptation to dramatically reform the system in the upper house because uh, they... Uh, Firstly, there's the fact of rural malapportionment. We've got 50, the seats are evenly divided between the metropolitan and non-metropolitan areas. This is nicely straightforward to explain, whereas three quarters of the population lives in the metropolitan area. You've got six member regions, which always makes it tough to get a majority because you need to win four out of six seats somewhere, which is always a big ask. But Labor have just blown these difficulties away by winning four seats in quite a number of regions. And on one of the scenarios I was looking at, there was somewhere where the East Metropolitan, I think they could potentially win five. This is a you know a, a one-in-a-lifetime result, which uh, notwithstanding that everyone saw there was a Labor landslide coming, I think the view was that a, a upper house majority was going to be a bridge too far. And that they would probably, you know, you, you, I, I think maybe the Greens holding the balance of power seemed more plausible. But as you say, they've got a constitutional majority, which has, uh, you need one seat extra, essentially. You need to win votes in the, the upper house, I think, without the, the president voting for you. And that made life very difficult for them in the past when Labor had big election wins. That uh, thwarted them in their bid to introduce one vote with value, one value in the lower house uh, after the 2001 election, I think. So, uh, you know, Labor have got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity here to, you know, govern in their image. And it, it's 
taken for granted that, that, that coalition governments here control the upper house. Uh, there's probably going to be a lot of belly aching about the, the unrestrained power that the Labor Party are going to have, but no one really mentioned much during the Barnett years that the Liberals and the Nationals between them had a majority in the upper house. And it did so from the barest possible win in 2008. So, uh, you know, it, it's uh, uh, a bit like the situation. The other thing is in Victoria in 2002 when Steve Brax had his big landslide win when Labor were first re-elected there, that finally gave the Labor Party the opportunity that they'd yearned for for many long decades to break the shackles of an upper house system that, that, that was, you know, wildly unfair to them and which they were never able to change because of that sort of paradox. In order to do it, they had to achieve the the impossible in, in the very system that was rigged against them, and Labor have done that now. And, uh, yeah, upper house reform is going to be a big issue. So there's three elements of the system that can be changed. First one, as you mentioned, is the even-numbered electorates. Um, it is much easier to have a majority of three out of five or of four out of seven than it is to achieve four out of six. Uh, that's also something we see in the Senate. So it tends to produce results of three left and three right outside of this sort of dramatic, unusual result. Um, so that's that's one thing that could change. And secondly, the group voting tickets, uh, we'll, let's not go into that in depth now, but that is a thing that, you know, for example, Victorian Labor, even if they wanted to change group voting tickets, they would not want to alienate the large number of crossbenchers who benefited from them, whose votes they need. That is not the case in WA right now. And it may be the case next election that Labor may find themselves reliant on crossbenchers who will prevent that. So this is a rare opportunity for that. And then, of course, there is the malapportionment as well that um, will they'll be looking to at least modify, reduce, maybe completely eliminate. Um so there is a lot to do there, but I think probably like Labor will want to take this up because it does have big knock-on effects for, you know, probably they'll be in government for at least eight years, if not longer, um, knock-on effects for their ability to govern. Yeah, I mean, the, the Labor Party, I might make the point that uh, not having an upper house majority um, can be perversely beneficial to your electoral prospects. Sometimes you should be careful what you wish for. And the, the classic example I'd point to there is that notwithstanding that everyone thought it was impossible in the modern context for a Senate majority to be won by a government, John Howard managed that after the 2004 election. And uh, I think not coincidentally, the 2004 election was the last election that he won with no break on their most uh, excessive impulses in the upper house. They brought in work choices and uh, brought in changes to sort of social security arrangements that were, you know, what the, the, the Liberal Party's donor base live for. And uh, the Labor, you know, finally won an election in 2007, their only convincing federal election win of, you know, the last however long it's been since 1993. So, uh, you know, that, that, that might be something for the Labor to keep in mind. They uh, need to have a check on their hubris, which, you know, the, the mere scale of the victory suggests that that's a, a, an issue for them. But, you know, there is also the fact that, uh, you know, that they won't have to do any negotiating. And, uh, you know, the the... The Legislative Council, upper houses, you know, notwithstanding that they're a pain in the neck for governments, can be uh, a restraint on their, their worst impulses. 
Okay, why don't we go through quickly the six upper house regions, just sort of run through what the options are and what we think may happen, um, bearing in mind that they're, they are infinitely complex and we've only got maybe a third of the vote counted so far. So agricultural region, uh, the Labor has won three seats pretty comfortably. Uh, that's up one from previously. The Nationals have held their two. Um, so that's five seats sorted. The last seat that's in play, the Liberals are leading and it looks like um, the Liberals will win over One Nation. And that seems to be the likely result. Yeah, that was my reading very late last night. Uh, you know, it's going to be a sort of theme of this that, you know, the Liberals are reduced to one seat or, you know, you could even conscious scenarios, I, I thought, where they didn't win any seats in some regions. And, uh, you know, that's uh, Labor winning throat seats in agriculture. Or, you know, I, I'm sure that's the best they've ever done there. And uh, But as I said earlier, Agricultural is exactly where, you know, the only bright spot I can find for any right of centre party this evening, last evening, <laughs> was that the Nationals did okay in exactly this area. Now, the, the agricultural region is the, the apex of the malapportionment of the system because it is four lower house seats constituting one upper house region. Whereas in the metropolitan area, there are 14 or 15 lower house seats constituting each upper house region. Uh, it's more malapportioned than the other two non-metropolitan regions are, mining and pastoral and southwest. So uh, it's the best case scenario for the nationals here. They've got this wonderful little boutique region in exactly their heartland, which was exactly the place where a right of centre party did okay uh, but nonetheless you know that they've emerged with two seats which you know wouldn't have been considered a brilliant performance under ordinary circumstances they were doing better, a lot better than that in agricultural uh, in 2008 and 2013 but uh, yeah it's uh, you, you could not have drawn up a better set of circumstances for the, the, the conservative parties than the agricultural region but even there Labor have won three seats Next up is East Metro, where currently Labor holds three. There's one Liberal, one Green, and one X1 Nation for the West Australian Party. Uh, Labor is on 4.5 quotas, uh, which is about 65% of the primary vote. Uh, Liberal Party are on 0.9 of a quota. Um, so that's five seats basically decided. The six seats in play, I think it's probably going to go either to legalised cannabis, who's currently leading, or Labor. Uh, I can't really see the Greens winning. They would need a, quite a substantial shift still early so that could happen um but basically legalized cannabis are just ahead of the x1 nation guy at a key point in the count if he overtakes them they get knocked out uh their preferences actually go to him but he doesn't do as well he doesn't get the greens preferences in the same way legalized cannabis would get them the greens preferences instead flow to labor labor gets elected that would be labor's 23rd seat if they won there yeah and you know you east metropolitan is labor's best region uh, it's uh, generally speaking in Perth, you want to live near the coast. So uh, the, the East Metropolitan is the most inland suburbs. So it's the, the, the lowest income areas and uh, it's always Labor's best region. 
But, uh, you know, you never would have thought that it was that much Labor's best region that they were going to be potentially in the hunt for five out of six seats or indeed thought it possible that that could be a, a conceivable result under this electoral system. Uh, so I, I probably think fourth more likely, time will tell. But uh, as you say, I, I can't see a path for the Greens here. And that means that their vote's going to end up on top of the Labor vote. So that's how it is that you end up with it with at least a conceivable scenario with there being five seats. But uh, legalised cannabis, as you say, are looking like they're in the hunt from I don't know what primary vote off the top of my head. 2.2%. Well, that's probably pretty good going for a minor micro party. And, you know, but they've got a, a name that is appealing to a, a section of the extremely disaffected base who vote randomly on the on the upper house paper and provide fuel for the fire for the for micro party preference harvests but i i would also point out that i'm pretty sure this is the last election we're going to we're going to be seeing this happening and that this is glendrury's last hurrah in western australia um, so, uh, nonetheless, legalised cannabis, I think there's not going to be the last we're hearing from them in the course of our review of the, of the six upper house regions. Three percent is, you know, arguably big enough of a base that you can, you know, win a seat and, you know, say that you're not, you haven't simply won a lottery like Ricky Muir or someone of that nature had done. But nonetheless, you know, there clearly needs to be something done about an electoral system that, that, that they can get you elected from from that little of the vote while you know much bigger parties are, are, are left empty-handed including the greens in this case seemingly one thing as well about legalized cannabis is a topic for another day but the rise of small minor parties of the left when i first got involved in politics particularly once the greens kind of took over from the democrats um there was, you just had the Greens and then you had a whole bunch of minor parties on the right. And now we have Animal Justice, we have Legalised Cannabis, uh, we have a bunch of these parties, some of them winning seats or coming close to winning seats, parties like Sustainable Australia that some people on the left wouldn't count as part of them but certainly appeal to some of the same demographics as the Greens. So the Greens are no longer just competing with Labor for their base, they're also competing with a bunch of these smaller parties. And sometimes they win seats, particularly under this voting system. Yeah, and you know that's sort of part of the broader phenomenon that you know the proliferation of micro parties has, has happened because the, the the incentive has been there you know they can conceivably win a seat they have learned and when you have these bloated ballot papers you get an increasing number of voters just voting for whatever and uh, a sex a segment of the greens vote has you know traditionally been protest vote, apathetic vote, and there are now a lot more avenues of opportunity for those voters. So the, the Greens are, you know, lacking that kind of supplement to their actual genuine support base that they traditionally have. Uh, but, you know, with, as I say, with election re electoral reform, it may be that you know, we, we see a, a decline in the number of micro parties. In fact, I'm sure we're going to. It didn't. It doesn't seem to have happened overnight at the federal level. Uh, but I think we're going to see a long-term decline in the number of these uh, small parties. Well, there's no point in setting up front parties once you've gotten rid of the group voting ticket system. And clearly, a lot of the the micro parties at this election, you know, can be characterised as front parties. 
So uh, as that declines over time, you know, it, it may be that the, the, the Greens benefit from, from lacking that competition for, for the broadly disaffected vote. Moving right along, mining and pastoral region, uh, Labor is on four quotas. They win four seats there. Uh, there is a seat that is either going to the Nationals or the Liberals, and there's a seat that's either going to the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers or Daylight Saving Party, uh, which I'll get to in a second. The Nationals and the Shooters are currently winning, but the Daylight Saving Party are currently on 33 votes, which puts them in second last place. Sorry, 36 votes. That's changed since the last time I checked that. Uh, 10 votes ahead of an independent ticket. If they're in last place, they would have no chance. They have there's a, there's a risk they could fall into last place, but if they don't, they snowball votes until they get from they multiply their vote by 77 times, uh, and they get to 0.92 of a quota, and then they're out. But there is a scenario where the shooters get knocked out by the liberal, and when that happens, the shooter preferences elect the liberals, and the daylight saving instead of electing the nationals, and then the daylight saving party could win off maybe maybe it'll end up being a hundred votes at the end of the count. The Glen Drury Preference Network, uh, what they usually do is pick a seat in each region to be favoured by all of the other parties' preferences. And in Mining and Pastoral, that party was the Daylight Saving Party, which seemed a bit perverse because Daylight Saving is very much a Perth enthusiasm in Western Australia. We've had, I, I don't, no longer know how many referendums on daylight saving in Western Australia here for, for complicated reasons. Basically, the business community want it, the public don't, and the government don't want to inflict it on the, the, the population without a mandate. But when I say the public don't want it, the public in Perth do want it. Uh, slight majorities vote in favour of daylight saving at these referendums. I think, you know, sort of the last time it was about. 55-45 in Perth, but it, it ran heavily against in the country. So, uh, yeah, the irony there is that the Daylight Saving Party were the beneficiary of the preference network in uh, a non-metropolitan part of the state where Daylight Saving is not actually popular. And uh, it would that would add a little piquant twist to... The most in the scenario that I'm indebted to you for pointing out to me that they could win a seat with as few as 100 votes as a result of the most perverse preference snowball of all time, layering on the irony and the you know undemocratic nature of all of this is that the very party that wins is a party that represents a specific one-issue concern in the part of the state that is least receptive to that one issue. Yeah, I, I can't think of a, of a better advertisement for the perversity of the group voting ticket system. North Metro Region, Labor is on four quotas again. Liberal Party are currently winning two seats uh, off 1.6 quotas. The last seat is a race between the Liberals, the Green, Australian Christians and Liberals for Climate. Uh, but I think there is a chance that if the Christians could close the gap with the Liberals, they could get elected. Uh, but at the moment, the Liberals winning that seat. I can't really see how the Greens win because they don't really have any progressive allies and they end up getting knocked out of the count. Yeah, the only qualification I'd make is that we are still at a fairly early stage in the count here. And uh, there's a lot of uh, electoral diversity in the North Metropolitan region. So, uh, and you... <laughs> I don't really know 
it's very hard to say where the, the, the votes may be outstanding. So uh, I'd want to see more numbers before I write the Greens off. But uh, as you say at the moment, they've got the problem that they've got everywhere, which is that, you know, Labor are, are so dominant that they're um, looking like they've got four quotas. Uh, maybe not exactly four quotas off their own bat. I don't know exactly how many quotas they have. But one way or another, they're not in a they're winning four seats probably and not leaving any surplus for the Greens, which is how the Greens normally get elected. You know, at a normal election, the, the scenario for the Greens winning is usually Labor have got you know two and a half quotas. The Greens get a bit more than half a quota, which means that Labor drop out and their surplus goes to the Greens and then the Greens have got a quota. At this election, we're sort of seeing Labor in the metropolitan regions get to four quotas. Uh, obviously, you know, you've done miraculously well. If you've got four quotas, you're not going to have much of a surplus, although East Metropolitan's an exception. And, uh, yeah, the uh, surpluses aren't there to... to to, to push the Greens over the line and that the Greens, like everyone, have suffered a loss of support to Labor. South Metro, uh, it looks like the Greens have won a seat here. Labor has 4.2 quotas and uh, the Liberals have won one seat. Uh, it looks a little bit, I haven't fully analysed this one and looked for every possible outcome here. Uh, but this one looks a little bit cleaner than the others. Looks like basically the Greens end up winning the last seat. I can't really see anyone else who wins yet, but I haven't fully analysed this seat yet. I had a bit of a fiddle with the calculator here and I ended up with a scenario where the Liberal Democrat member here gets re-elected. Um, I, I wouldn't be confident for him nonetheless. But, uh, yeah, the Liberal Democrats won a seat here in 2017. They had a splendid position on the ballot paper where the Liberals were, Liberal Democrats was the first Liberal name you saw on the ballot paper and that always confuses a lot of voters. Uh, he didn't have that advantage this time. Uh, I'm sure his vote isn't that high, but as, as we've discussed at very great length, it doesn't always need to be where you get the, the, the micro-party preference snowball. So uh, I don't think he's going to win. But uh, it's it, it at least is a potential complication to what you say is a relatively straightforward result. So uh, this is a good chance that this is going to be the only seat the Greens win, and it's not a case of a Greens member being re-elected. The Greens, the, the Liberal Democrats' win in 2017 came at the expense of a Greens incumbent. So uh, now we could see a situation where there's only one. Greens MP. The MP is a neophyte in terms of being elected to Parliament for the first time. All of the Greens incumbents are cleared out. Uh, the, the could be the only Greens MP that we have is uh, Brad Pettit, who has for some time been the Mayor of Fremantle. And finally, the Southwest region uh, labours on 3.7 quotas, which is a bit lower. Uh, Liberals have just gotten over a quota, so that's four seats sorted there. And then the last two seats at the moment are going to legalise cannabis and the Nationals. I suspect Labor might have a chance of winning a fourth seat here, but at the moment uh, legalised cannabis gets elected off Greens' preferences and then the Australian Christians' preferences seem to elect a National over Labor to the final seat, um, but I'm not, I'm not fully across the results in that region yet. 
Yeah, my playing around suggested that the legal... I believe there's a, a tendency in late counting for the micro-party vote to fade. You, you get sort of more committed voters uh, voting postally and perhaps to a slightly lesser extent pre-poll. It's the, the election day voters who were there under sufferance and are most likely to vote for a random micro-party and uh, most of their votes are counted now. So if if the micro-party vote fails, you could get legalised cannabis dropping out. And as I think you've said here, that that creates potentially an opening for the Greens to win a second seat. But the other scenario, if legalised cannabis don't get it all together, is that Labor win a fourth seat. I managed to come up with a scenario where the national seat, uh, to reiterate, I Labor have clearly won three. It looks like one each for the Liberals and the Nationals and uh, legalised cannabis uh, get, get the remaining seat. I found a scenario where the Nationals don't make it and the Conservative seat, the second Conservative seat, actually goes to Australian Christians. And uh, I think we mentioned Australian Christians as a possibility in North Metropolitan. Australian Christians have always been kind of the bridesmaids, so to speak, in Western Australian upper house elections. Uh, I think you could have a lot of morning after election day discussion over many elections over the last 20 years where you've been talking about the Australian Christians being a possibility, but they have never made it. They've never won a seat in the upper house. And uh, they, they seem to be in the hunt here. And uh, I guess, you know, what's happening is that the, the, the vote for the Liberal and National parties is so low that we're sort of seeing scenarios where they, you know, drop out and have uh, preferences to spare to make the Australian Christians competitive in a couple of places. Uh yeah, well, the other option as well is legalised cannabis are 0.9% ahead of the Greens. If that gap closes, um, their preferences, well, at least legalised cannabis itself, their preferences go to the Greens. The remainder, I don't know what about all the other parties for them. And then probably uh, in that scenario, then Greens' preferences, instead of going to legalised cannabis, would go to Labor, or maybe the Greens could win themselves. So that that is a scenario where legalised cannabis, I think, if they lose, that seat will probably either go to Labor or the Greens. Another example we're seeing where minor parties of the left are competing with bigger parties of the left and minor parties of the right are often competing with bigger parties of the right. Yeah, it's sort of difficult to sort of do anything than sort of repeat platitudes about what an extraordinary result this is. Uh and uh, the, the the big point that I make is that you know in the last decade we've seen uh, election wins with the winner with their two party preferred vote in the sixties, which would uh, and to reiterate Queensland twenty twelve, New South Wales twenty eleven, and now Western Australia. And uh, structurally, I don't think this would have been possible in past times. This is the uh, decline of party loyalties at work where when there is a dynamic in the electorate for the swing to be on and for anyone who isn't rusted onto a political party to you know join the bandwagon in a particular direction there are more voters powering those bandwagons and you get overwhelming results 
and results that I think raise the question about the, the suitability of majoritarian electoral systems, which produce wildly unbalanced results when you get these sorts of blowouts. And we're seeing that illustrated more heavily than in than ever here, where Labor are, you know, going to have all but a very small handful of seats in the lower house. And uh Apart from people with a career interest in labour politics, I don't think that's in many people's interest. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, William, for joining me. Great pleasure. Thank you, Ben. I'll be posting more coverage of the state election over the coming days at tallyroom.com.au. And William, I'm sure you will be doing some more analysis yourself. I'll be sleeping for a very long time, but (laughs) yes, analysis will certainly follow. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. 